Today we're going to continue our discussion of 3030, which as the days and weeks and months go by is going to become more and more significant as we become better prepared and hopefully it becomes routine dealing with the new discovery statutes and that the coronavirus issues will no longer be part of our practice. But 3030 will indeed be there six months, five months, seven months from now, as defendants start to file 3030 motions. We've had a couple of cases already dismissed, both of which we feel the court has made errors in calculating under the new 245 application. But we will see those cases as time goes on and we'll discuss them later. Today, we're going to be discussing something that may or may not be significant to you in the past, but will be very significant perhaps in the future. And that's CPL 3032A. Now, while the majority of the litigation involving speedy trial centers around the portion of the statute which results in the dismissal of an indictment, that is 3031A, there is also another section of the statute which requires your attention, and this is 2A. If the people are not ready for trial within 90 days of chargeable time from the commencement of the criminal action, felony case, those numbers, and the defendant has been in custody for this entire period of time, the defendant must be released on bail or his or her own recognizance. As it says in the statute, upon such circumstances that may be just and reasonable. And considering this day and age with so much emphasis on bail reform and assuring that defendants have the least intrusive way of securing their return to court, you can be sure that the court is going to give the defendant every benefit of the doubt in these circumstances. Now, let us take a look at what is required. If there are one, in excess of 90 days, number two, of chargeable time to the people, number three, in which the defendant was incarcerated, four, the defendant must have bail set that realistically he or she can make or simply released on his or her own recognizance. Now, let's take a look at this in a little more detail. Number one, the excludable and includable nature of the time is calculated the same way in which it is calculated when you are discussing a dismissal motion under 3031A. So if you are diligently keeping track of your includable time for 3031A, you also have a calculation for the 90-day release under 2A. Secondly, for the defense to be successful in such a motion, the 90 days of includable time are not required to be 90 days of consecutive includable time. This was actually many years ago an argument as to how this particular section applied, but it is clear that it's simply a calculation of a total of 90 includable days when the defendant was incarcerated. Now third, and this is the one that sometimes folks will overlook, and I just said it, but again, it might be overlooked. Only the includable time where the defendant has been incarcerated is going to be calculated in reaching this 90-day limit. For example, 
let's say there were 120 days of includable time chargeable to the people. But the defendant had only been incarcerated for 60 of those 120 days. Then the motion to release pursuant to 3032A should be denied, there being only 60 days of includable time for those purposes. Now, circumstances may change which justify the court to set additional bail or order the remand of a defendant. Obvious situation would be one where a defendant was released and then was rearrested on a new crime. A release pursuant to this section does not mean that the defendant must remain at liberty during the entire pendency of the case if he or she violates the terms of the bail as set by the court. If the trial commences, another example, a remand or bail application is perfectly appropriate and the court has the right to consider granting your motion. The defendant is chronically late to court, another example. Now, interestingly, in one decision, a judge held that defendant who had been out on bail and has violated the conditions of release by failing to appear in court when required by the court, the defendant did not have the right to subsequently move for release under 3032A when the judge set bail and the defendant had to step in. This is a bit extreme. It's a case of People v. Grant from the Bronx, decided by Judge William Mogulescu. But it's an example of, I think, what you find in this particular area. You will not find too many decisions written that you can read and come to a feel of what the courts did or didn't or weren't able to do. Any challenge, obviously, come for a habeas corpus or some other attempt to attack the actual method of holding the defendant in. You're not going to find too many cases dealing with these issues. Another example that comes into play here is when a defendant is held on remand on some other case, and the defendant has your case, and depending on your case, and the defendant has been out on your case, a standard procedure for many defense attorneys is to ask that a $1 bail be set on the defendant on your pending case. Since he or she is on remand on another case, he or she is in, and they're not gonna be able to make the bail, they ask for $1 bail, so they will receive credit for that time for your case, the one that's pending. Now, in a decision written by Judge Ann Donnelly back in 2009, again, while sitting in the Bronx, in the context of the 90 days, she wrote that a setting of a dollar bail was simply an administrative mechanism to guarantee that the defendant incarcerated on a parole hold would receive credit for all the jail time served. The defendant was incarcerated pursuant to the authority of the State Division of Parole, and she went on to explain all of this, and she said that until the defendant was arraigned on this new case in which $25,000 bail was set, up until then, the defendant did not get any credit towards a potential release on the 90-day 3032A purpose. Very interesting approach by Judge Donnelly. Now, when we're dealing with a decision by a court that addresses a 3032A decision, motion by the defense, that decision is going to be binding on any other court of concurrent jurisdiction that subsequently deals with 3031A 
dismissal motion. Now, we mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. And again, if you have a motion made by the defense for the defendant's release on a 3032A, whatever the judge decides on that, however much time that judge determines should be charged to you, is going to be binding on any judge of concurrent jurisdiction who's going to make a subsequent decision on a 3031A dismissal motion. So it's very key that when you argue these motions, you be sure that the court is making the right decision. And if you need to make a motion to reconsider or re-argue, you do that. Take a look at the case of People v. Kirk, a First Department case from 2006 where habeas corpus was denied. Now, here are a couple of additional speedy trial points we want to make today. Just to keep in mind, in you're doing your calculations for includable and not includable time. Remember, whether under the old law or under the new law, a defendant who is joined with a co-defendant and that time for an adjournment is chargeable to one defendant, not the other. In other words, one requests the adjournment and the other one doesn't. That time is excludable as to both defendants as long as they are both joined. So again, a clear record is a must. Now, we've discussed 3030 subdivision four and all of the reasons there listed why time should be excludable. When a defendant is joined with a co-defendant, this excludable time exception also applies pre-indictment. So for example, if I have two defendants where the case is still pending, maybe going into the grand jury, maybe not, discussion of possible plea, requests for adjournments by a defendant. Those times are also considered to be excludable when attributable to one, but not the other. And as we all know, these 3030 subdivision four exceptions to chargeable time do not require us to have been ready in order for them to apply to any particular adjournment. Now, if we have an indictment that is subsequently dismissed on an inspection due to insufficient evidence, all of the excludable time that we had up until that decision was made will still be legitimately excludable. Because again, as we've discussed, a defendant who is indicted goes to trial and is convicted can no longer attack the evidentiary sufficiency of that indictment. So therefore, any excludable time up to the point of a dismissal based on insufficient evidence is still excludable time. Of course, never forget, and this has not been impacted in any way by the new discovery statute, that people's motions are excludable time, 3034A. And as Jed Painter said way back last summer, he brought that to everyone's attention at Summer College. Well done, Jed. And that holds on solid today. Motions you make that are legitimate ones, again, not minor motions, but legitimate motions, that time is excludable. Now, is there any reason to announce ready for trial when the defense has filed a 3030 motion? Well, you could say it's a 30-30 motion, it's a defense motion, so time is excludable. If you are in a position to announce your readiness when a defense files 
a speedy trial motion, you should do so. There are a number of examples of cases in the past where the people's delay in securing the needed minutes or getting their answer in on the speedy trial motion was found by the court to be excessive. And the court said, I am not excluding all of this time it took you to answer the motion. And therefore, I'm going to start to charge you with time. And as I said, there were a number of cases, not too many, but a number of cases where time was additionally charged to the people while a speedy trial dismissal motion was pending. However, if you have announced your readiness, that time should not be charged to you because there is no rule that says a 30-30 motion must be decided before a trial can be had. Now, of course, most judges are not going to have a trial or have a trial conducted when there is an outstanding 30-30 motion. Although I have seen situations where the court has felt it's a totally specious motion and the defense has merely filed it in order to delay the trial and has said, we will decide the 30-30 motion after the trial. And the court tried the case, then it was convicted, court did the 30-30 motion and found it not to be a legitimate one and denied the motion. So whenever you are in a position to announce your readiness, even when there's a motion pending, you should be doing so. Remember, of course, that defendants' motions for dismissal for speedy trial purposes must be in writing. An oral motion is insufficient. And finally for today, any pronouncement by the calendar judge that a specific adjournment is either chargeable or not chargeable is not binding on the court that makes the decision on a motion to dismiss. Take a look at the case of People v. Berkowitz all the way back from 1980 from your Court of Appeals. Okay, folks, well, once again, we've delved into more issues of 3030, and we expect to have even more as time goes on. Our thanks, as always, to our crack team, Mr. Marconi, who's busy, busy, busy as he can possibly be, as is everyone at Nifty right now. And it's a real pleasure to work with everyone who's working so hard, as they always do. So to all of you out there, good luck. Be well and stay ready, my friends. Special conversation brings us back where we before. You gotta hit your mark on center stage. I'm just an extra in your show. You change your lines. On